welcome to Heroes of the Galaxy, the podcast where myself and a guest celebrate the women of the Star Wars universe. Now, in 2021, this podcast will be getting a bit of a makeover, which I won't spill anything about just yet, but this will be the final episode of it in its current form. And I am honoured that my guest this time is the lovely Annalise Ophelian. Before we get going, I'd just like to shout out our friends at Super Yaki for once again sponsoring this episode. If you're a fan of wholesome cinematic t-shirts, pin badges, books and more, there is no other online shop I'd recommend. And Heroes of the Galaxy are particularly fond of their Space Wizards collection. If you use the code SUPERFRIEND in all caps, that's S-U-P-E-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you can get yourself 10% off your first order at checkout. Thank you so much again guys for your support! Annalise directed the seven-part documentary web series Looking for Leia, which takes us on a journey through all the glorious parts of fandom and what Star Wars has done for the fans who are carving out their own spaces in the community. It was such a joy to talk to her about the series and her own relationship to Star Wars, so without further ado, please enjoy our chat. So um, I heard about Looking for Leia, your documentary series, a while back, and I'd seen a lot of like clips and talk about it online, but I watched it from start to finish in preparation for this podcast with my mum, actually. She loved it a lot as well. Nice. Um, okay. And I found it so moving. Um, I can't wait to talk about that specifically and about the series and the process and everything, but um, I just wanted to start with a bit more about you. So if you can think back, what was your very first experience with the Star Wars universe? It's like, I'm making the little like Wayne's world like yeah. <laughs> um, right so I am um, I saw I saw the original trilogy in the theater as it was coming out um, and so I think a lot of my Star Wars memories are also like, I think everybody has their entry point into um, into like the galaxy and so much of that is like wrapped up in the moment in time as well and I love that I love that like our entry points are all also kind of culture bound and like distinct. So a lot of my memories of Star Wars are also just like about my childhood in the 70s and early 80s. Um, and I don't remember the first time that I saw Star Wars, um, but it w was in the theater. I do remember like the 10th time um, because <laughs> I think it's a lot, like the thing about that original trilogy is that those movies were in the theaters forever. Like the, the first film was in the theater for a solid year. Wow. And then um, as a kid, like I would, you know, I, um, both my parents worked and my father was um, in graduate school actually when I was young. And so like through his university, we'd go to like, I'd go to like, you know, sort of summer programming, like his, you know, parents have to find a thing for you to do. And so the Star Wars movies were often at the sort of like dollar or dime matinee. Um, mm -hmm. And there'd be these like activities you could sign up for and going to see Star Wars was often an activity like in the sort of like you can go see a movie for very cheap in the afternoon. And I saw it like 10 times in one summer. And my mom <laughs> will tell the story of being like, yeah, we would ask you like, are you sure you don't want to do anything else? Like you could go to a putt-putt. You could like <laughs> learn how to macrame. And it's like, nope, I just want to go see Star Wars again. Um, and so a lot of my memories are of the... Um, of going back to see it over and over again when it was in the theater. And um, at that point, I think it was after Empire had come out where like the first movie was in the theaters on the kind of cheap matinees and I would go back mm -hmm. and see it over and over. 
Have you been like a solid fan since that moment or was there ever a time where you didn't watch it for a few years and then you came back to it and really immersed yourself in it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been solid for me. Um, mm -hmm. And there was an interesting moment in, for me, like when I went off to college, I went off to college in 1990. And I remember there being at my school of, you know, extremely unsanctioned screening of the original films. I'm sure someone had like a laser disc or had connected with the AV department. Um, and there were just these kind of cryptic use the force Xerox copied posters sort of repasted around campus. It was a very pasty era. So we were often just kind of like smashing art up on the wall with paste. Um, and, and having this just like amazing thrill of nostalgia, right? Like, cause the films would be on um, cable on heavy rotation throughout the um, 80s and into the early 90s. And so I think that re-watching those films as a kind of comfort place was yeah. all there for me. I didn't read a lot of the EU. I, I think I read, like I know I read the Thrawn trilogy, like I did some of that reading, but I think for me at that time, much like comic books, um, keeping track of those stories was daunting. Yeah. Um, I have happily, I think, moved into a different way of consuming that kind of stuff now. And actually working on Looking for Leia helped teach me a lot about how to consume non-canon works and really love them. Um, mm -hmm. But no, it was, it was consistent. And then, you know, the, the prequels came out and I, I was, you know, opening night um, in line for all of the prequel movies as they came out. I think like a lot of folks of my generation at the time when those come out, came out, those didn't resonate as much with me. Mm -hmm. um, although again, like, one of the things that's great about storytelling that's this populated is that they've absolutely come back around for me um, in a way that those movies feel as much, if not more like Star Wars than a lot of other Star Wars, yeah. right? So yeah, I would say it's definitely something that I've gotten to age along with. It's not my only fandom, like I'm a big geek and, and there's many other places I've gotten to tap into during the 90s when we didn't have a Star Wars contact. I was a big Trekkie. I was a big um, Next Generation fan. So, you know, different different franchises would sort of step to the front of the line yeah. that were producing new material. Um, and then, of course, in the sequel trilogy era, I think a lot of us had to adjust to this idea of like, oh, no, we're going to have new Star Wars now forever. Like, because there was a big period of time when you thought that was yeah. it. You're, you have all the Star Wars you're going to get. And, um, and now we're clearly, we've turned that page and we'll now have new Star Wars content until, you know, there's nothing left but bugs on the planet. <laughs> there's just like so much of it. You're probably right. <laughs> Okay, so what is your favorite part, do you think, about being a Star Wars fan? A very loaded question, I know. Oh, it's such a loaded question. I mean, that's changed for me mm -hmm. over the course of my life. I would say that um, today, my favorite part of being a Star Wars fan is actually the shorthand that it gives me to connect with other Star Wars fans. Um, mm -hmm. And the friendships that I have developed with women in particular um, that are geek specific and that started with Star Wars. And those connections are something that um, feels incredibly unique to geek culture, but also unique to Star Wars community, yeah. Star Wars fan communities, right? Because there's not kind of a monolith. Um, yeah, that, that, that way that it gives us a kind of entry, a, a, a secret password, <laughs> if you will, yeah. to connect with others is really, is really delightful. I love that. Okay. And speaking of women, um, <laughs> who is your favorite woman in the Star Wars universe and who do you feel most connected to and why? Again, this is so this is kind of like rides at Disneyland for me, where like mm -hmm. whatever ride I'm on, <laughs> this is my favorite ride, right? So like, I, it yeah. is hard for me to be exclusive. And I know everyone always expects me to answer Leia to this. And Leia is certainly like 
hugely up there. But I think that if I were to have just like a go-to, everything about this character is like my jam. It's Asajj Ventress. She's, okay. she's my favorite character. Um, and the Night Sisters in general, mm-hmm. Mother Talzin is maybe more age appropriate for me. <laughs> I, feel like, I like, I relate to that character also really deeply, but like, I love a space witch. So the, the space witches really are, there's, I think that Asajj's character just has so much really, um, it's everything I love about Star Wars, which is to say this is a fantasy, not sci-fi franchise. Mm. So you get that like deep space magic. I love a nebulously villainous hottie. <laughs> so, you know, she definitely falls in that category for me. She's just a, yeah. she's a great, a great character. I, I've got to say Clone Wars is very much my like Star Wars blind spot. I've seen bits, but I've never sat down and kind of watched it all. So the Night Sisters for me, my first introduction to them was through Jedi Fallen Order, the game. Oh yeah. Have you played it? I have not. I am. So gaming is my kind of, like, that's the place on my punch card that's just not punched. Yeah. Um, and so I've watched the gameplay and of course people in my life are just obsessed with it and talk about how completely great the story is. So I've got it in my head that I need to sit down and actually just like watch the whole thing through. Um, I've watched parts of it. My brother, who's a big gamer, brought his console to my house like last year over the holidays and was like, okay, you're going to just watch me play this for a bit. And I was like, yeah, this is great. I would spend the entire game just like jumping and falling, <laughs> right? Course, like it would yeah. just, I would never get that right. Um, but I'm so, I'm actually really excited that you haven't watched the Clone Wars because there's a zillion of them and yeah. it's nice, <laughs> like it's there for you, right? So like when you are ready to sit down with some Clone Wars, you're going to be so happy because that yeah. is some great storytelling but that's I mean it's I think especially because we're in this horrible moment right now right where I am Mm. just like oh my god everything I was looking forward to seeing in a theater this year is gone and we just don't know when we're getting new content and so it's Mm -hmm. very soothing to know that um either we can rewatch content right and there is a psychological basis to the um anxiolytic quality of rewatching things that we're familiar with so i think we're all doing a lot of that right now but knowing that there's new stuff and you can definitely watch clone wars i think you can definitely watch clone wars by arcs and that's a really um accessible way to get into it and there's a lot of folks that will give you the sort of like okay for each season here are the arcs that you can watch. And, th- and then, of course, anybody's list will exclude someone else's most important arc. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, but you can, like, I think the first time I watched Clone Wars, because I came to it after it aired, mm-hmm. um, I, did, I did an arc watch where I just went through, I, I, like, found something on a Reddit and was like, all right, help me, help me wade my way through this because I don't have this many hours to watch TV. Um, and then I went back through. And at mm-hmm. this point, there's, like, I have my favorite arcs that I've just watched dozens of times. When I was in post, um, when it was still on Netflix, I would frequently just put it on in the background to keep the dogs from going nuts. They watch <laughs> Shira now. Um, but just like, like if I'll find if I put something on, then they'll, they'll all calm down so that I would just like have it rolling in the background. It's, um, yeah. it's such satisfying stuff. Amazing. I can't wait to get to it. I really can't. Um, yeah. Okay, so that was a great segue actually into your incredible docuseries. So take me from the beginning, how did it come about and what was it that compelled you to start making this? Tell us a bit about what it is first for those who might not know. 
You bet. So Looking for Leia is a seven-part short-form docuseries available on Sci-Fi and Sci-Fi Wire. Internationally, you can watch it on, on Sci-Fi's YouTube channels. Um, and it is about women and also non-binary fans of the galaxy far, far away. And we, over the course of seven episodes, profile a number of different fans about the sort of way that fandom has functioned in their lives, the ways that fandom serves a purpose in the ways that we form identity and connection and purpose. Uh, and it was really designed to be a sort of celebratory exploration of a group of fans that are actually really traditionally not looked at at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I think also one of my real goals in it was to show a side of fandom that I think we don't see in the media very often. Because the media um, is, I think, often preoccupied with stories of sort of otherness. And mm -hmm. fans get a lot of short shrift in that. There's a, a narrative about the sort of obsessive... Um, toxic infighting and Star Wars feels especially prone to that sort of media lens and when I talk with fans about why they're fans and the purpose that fandom serves in their lives I get a radically different picture than what I see if I'm just sort of like browsing the clickbait or the top shelf stuff on social media so I really mm -hmm. was compelled by those stories and wanted to tell more of them and that's that's what the series is. That was such a great like sum up as well I think like it's such a celebration of everyone who this series has come to mean so much to and I really felt that absolutely felt that it was, it was very emotional to watch as well actually um so I love particularly the way the episodes are structured so you have like what we build what we preserve and things like that how did you decide to structure it that way and how was it that you went about finding your subjects for each episode and interviewing oh, subjects so I'm, um, I'm a phenomenological documentarian, um, which is to say that I tend to go at my topics from an initial point of interest or curiosity, like an initial question, that's specifically bound to what is this group's experience of this thing. And then I look to the group that I'm asking the question of to tell me what the story is about, which is different than something like a true crime doc that is primarily interested in the retelling of a mystery or the solving of a mystery, right? Like it's, I don't go in with an idea of what these episodes are. Mm -hmm. I go in with a sort of like, what is this? What is this? And what does it mean to you? Tell me about your experience of it. And so the initial, um, sort of impetus behind looking for Leia was that I, um, I have, you know, gone to comic conventions and geek conventions since 1990, 1991. And my first Star Wars celebration was in Anaheim in 2015. And I was used to my comic convention um, experience being that of being kind of adrift in a sea of fanboys. And, and they often were things I would go to by myself, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and Celebration in 2015 was the first time I actually was in line for hours and hours at a time with just tons of other women. So I was really surprised to see all these other women in line having just as many, like, you know, you have these passionate conversations when you're waiting mm -hmm. to see Carrie Fisher for like eight hours or whatever. <laughs> um, and then I was surprised that I was surprised. And, and there was a, like, I was confronted with a lot of my own sort of stereotypes about what it meant. Like I would often describe myself to folks as a teenage boy, right? Which both infantilizes fandom and acknowledges this kind of way we internally gender it. Uh, yeah. And both of those things, of course, are kind of nonsense. Um, and so I, uh, wanted to just hear more about what fandom meant in the lives of women. And that was the original kind of query. Um, and then as, because gender, of course, does not function on a binary and gendered language is incredibly restrictive and oppressive as, uh, 
I was inviting folks. So we created the website. I made a sort of um, contact form on the website. Uh, from the beginning, there was an invitation of like, if you are a person who identifies as non-binary, um, AMAB or AFAB non-binary folks who want to be involved in this project that is really organizing itself around women's experiences, um, recognizing that there are non-binary folks that are just like, yeah, I've got to like, foot in multiple spaces of identity and I want to be able to have my voice be a part of this as well. Mm -hmm. There was an invitation, like, let us know if you'd like to talk with us. And that entry form became kind of like a confessional booth and people started sending me their stories and it was just amazing. The kind of quality of content that I was getting and from the very beginning, the, the themes that kind of came up in those early um, emails. Uh, and so I had some uh, initial um, interviews and conversations with a handful of folks who were incredibly generous and also then connecting me with other folks. Um, and there was a lot of networking. Social media certainly helped me connect with folks who were podcasting, for instance, and writing and, and generating content. And it just became a kind of word of mouth. And then the film, and, and so I would do um, pre-interviews um, generally over a kind of video call to just get a sense of like, all right, well, what's your story? What's the, like, how does fandom function in your life? What would you want to talk about? And then we went on, uh, me and my intrepid crew went on a kind of convention circuit because we, I'm based in San Francisco. We were trying to get as much geographic representation as we could on our like spectacularly small budget. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it just sort of went from there. And so that I would say we filmed over the course of, um, 14 months getting kind of wow. all of the stuff. And then in the last stages of post, there were pickup shoots that were just like where we needed to fill gaps. And I ended up talking with um, over a hundred people on camera. Wow. Um, and, and so from that, there was a, my process is that I transcribe my, uh, my interviews. So we ended up with just over a thousand pages of single space oh transcript. And then I go through and do a kind of axial coding on the transcripts where I, I list things out by the kind of like top themes and sub themes. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a Excel spreadsheet that'll often put those things in. So I can kind of search by like everybody who's telling me who their favorite character is or everybody's story of the first time they saw Star Wars, um, but then other things like everybody who's talking to me about the fake fangirl test, or everybody mm. who talks to me about the way that um, the, the Star Wars stories help them through a moment of loss or help them cope with a, a traumatic incident. Um, and so listening to what all of those folks told me helped shape what the narrative was. Um, mm -hmm. And like a fraction of that ends up on screen, um, right? So like everybody who interviewed and get kind of substantive interview on camera is like in the thank yous because even if they weren't on camera and it was heartbreaking to figure out how to get what was going to go on screen on screen and then leave everything else on the 20 terabyte hard drive, um, mm -hmm. everybody had a part to play in shaping what the story was about. Um, Originally, it was conceived of as a feature, and it was just too difficult the way I had filmed it, honestly, to mm. string that together into a kind of cohesive narrative. And so as I was pitching it to places and trying to get it to fit the format for wherever its eventual home base would be, it also became really clear that a episodic format was going to work best. I think that's also really consumable. I think it's the way yeah. that we tend to like take stories in. Um, 
And my editing process very much involves going back to the folks on camera. So I would do a very kind of general rough cut and then go back to folks and say, did I get this right? And then folks would, you know, folks on camera would be able to like either see the rough cut or look at a transcript and tell me, yep, that's it. Or actually don't want that out, out, out mm. there. Um, I think particularly when we're talking about marginalized fans, I like to really give folks the agency and self-determination to decide what they want to make available to mass public consumption and yeah. what they'd like to actually reserve for themselves. Um, and that back and forth process. And then also there, I had consulting producers and folks that were part of review committees that would take a look at the, the work as we were going through it and give me story feedback. So it's a very collaborative effort. Yeah. I would say like people told me what the episodes were about in a sense by the content of the interviews. There were some interviews like um, what we preserved the Navajo translation mm. of A New Hope that was clearly its own story from the beginning, right? And that was just like, I was, I was compelled by that story and I really wanted to do just an episode on that. Um, other episodes like um, More Than the Basement, I think very much came out of a variety of conversations that were happening throughout interviews that ranged from the fake fangirl test to the role that transformative fandom and kind of generative creative fandom plays uniquely for, um, for women's fandom. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it was a, a real unnodding process, kind of figuring out what the story could be. That sounds incredibly organized as well, like the <laughs> spreadsheets, the, the hard drives, and just also, I think it's so brilliant, the fact that you worked so hard and took the time to make sure that each interview subject had that agency. Like you said, you, you didn't go ahead with like a cut of them talking about something without checking with them first to see if that's how they wanted to come across. And I think that's, I don't think every documentary filmmaker would do that. So I think that's really brilliant to hear. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think of I think documentary as a format is actually inherently a very colonial one, right? So I think if you look at how documentary is made, it tends to be resourced people outside of the group that they are profiling or studying, going into a community that is not theirs, yeah. harvesting resources in the form of experiences and stories, pulling those out of the community and refining them outside of the community. Um, right? This is mining, really. Um, yeah. And then in the case of documentary in particular, typically sharing those things outside of the communities that they are about. So if we think about, you know, that documentaries are often stories about marginalization, but the sort of like brass ring of where you would show these things are on a festival circuit that the people who are the subjects of those documentaries are not the base audience of. Yeah. Um, that process is a problematic one. Um, and it's one that I think all documentarians should be in constant conversation with ourselves and with the communities that we're trying to build work in about. Um, and so that, yeah, that's the way that I work on all of my projects. I'm also mm -hmm. a psychologist by training. And so it's a very qualitative research methodology. Yeah. I'm always grateful, <laughs> always grateful to be a, I am a scientist at heart and I definitely bring the, the research methodology to, to, post-production and to production for that matter, it does keep things much tidier. It does help a lot. Fantastic. Um, so something that has come up a lot in episodes of this podcast also is the gatekeeping nature of some parts of the community, which I think you kind of mentioned briefly with the whole fangirl test thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it is mentioned in your series that as women, we are often made to prove ourselves and we get quizzed or interrogated by male fans or other fans. Um, what are your thoughts on that kind of like aspect of fandom? And do you think it's a huge part of it or is it something that can be easily ignored maybe? I mean, I think that it's, I think my first 
thought on it. And my thinking on this has definitely like evolved as mm. I've worked on the project, right? Like I'm so grateful to this project for the ways that it's informed my own fandom. It's been really enlightening to get to work on it in that respect. Um, I want to believe that there's a part of this that's very generational um, and that as um, we continue to grow and evolve this gatekeeping um, as it is practiced specifically by like cis dudes is mm -hmm. going to greatly diminish. I want to believe that um, because I also believe that gatekeeping is not like most oppressions, right? Um, is not coming from a place of malice. And if we assign, if it has to be malicious in order to be actionable, then we're, you know, in trouble and, and guys are never going to do anything to fix it because I don't think guys wake up in the morning and think, how can I just be the worst I can possibly be <laughs> to women? Um, I think they just like are. And so what you want to do is say, look guys, like join us in this. And we can say this for all folks that like stand in, um, in those kind of cultural positions of privilege. Um, I think about my own way of often identifying myself as a Star Wars fan by my point of origin, which is to say like I saw the films as they came out in the theater um, in the 70s and 80s. And that's always just been a kind of point of identification for me. Mm -hmm. And working on the project, I was able to really hear from particularly prequel era fans, the ways in which that like, I'm, a, I'm an original trilogy fan has been used to gatekeep them. And it's a way yeah. it, it was helpful for me to be like, oh, right. I'm saying this thing that's just like, I think identifying myself and placing myself, but this has been used enough to gatekeep people that I'm going to stop, I, I'm going to stop using that as my point of identification because it is a kind of microaggression. It's a way of kind yeah. of stepping on other fans and being like, yeah, well, I was here first. It's like, you know, when I happen to see the movie first plays no role whatsoever in a hierarchy of fandom. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I... I feel like there's um, parallels for me as well in fandom, certainly with filmmaking, with the kind of like general ways that women are infantilized or disregarded or tested or seen as hobbyists. Mm -hmm. I think about um, certainly working on a project that was Star Wars fandom related involves getting so, so many Star Wars gifts. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, like I'm sitting here, I'm wearing a Star Wars t-shirt right now. Like I, I have to take a Star Wars thing off when I leave the house, right? Like, cause I'm often like kind of, I'll kind of just yeah. casually just go to the grocery store and then be like, great, take at least three pieces of IP off before you leave the house. Cause this is a lot. But I was like at a grocery store ages ago and I was checking out and I'm just like, you know, I'm flagging a lot of Star Wars and the delightful guy who's like checking me out um, looks at me, you know, I got like my Rebel Alliance wallet. I, I don't <laughs> know if any of my like multiple Star Wars tattoos are showing at that point, but he looks at my t-shirt and he says, are you a fan or are you just wearing the shirt? And I had this moment of just oh being like, God. are you kidding? I don't know, like that's just not the question. Um, so I think, I think that just like the, the subtle and not subtle ways that we get told all the time that our fandom is something that has to be explained to us or that we're not mm -hmm. really real around is absolutely a shared experience. And I think it's a thing that guy fans want to not do. Um, and, and so, you know, I loved seeing the huge amount of support that we got, particularly like I always love it when it's guys that are just like, yeah, I really want to be in a fan community. And part of being in a community is that we're also going to be attentive to each other and the things that we need to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because that, that gatekeeping quality was just, again, it was such a universally expressed experience. Um, and not even like in a, this is like a really hard or traumatic thing for me to overcome, just in a like, oh yeah, that's a Tuesday. <laughs> right yeah. like this is just this is just what it's like to be yeah we're just used to it aren't we 
Like totally. if you meet someone new for the first time and you happen to say you're a Star Wars fan, you just have to prepare yourself for that immediate reaction where it's like, oh, but are you like a fan or are you, do you just like the movies or whatever? Right. And yeah, and then I'm like, oh, but I have a podcast. Does that give me a pass? Or like if you like create something or, you know, you create a series or you write for a Star Wars blog, like I feel like unless you're somewhat active in the community in that kind of way that maybe you're not taken too seriously as if you just like the movies and have all the DVDs or have a tattoo and stuff like that. You can't prove you're actioning your fandom. And I think maybe that is another form of gatekeeping in itself in that you can be part of something without being actionable in it, if that makes sense. I feel like I'm rambling now, but. No, no, yeah. that's absolutely <laughs> it. That's absolutely it. And it's, you know, it's, it's ironic because there was a point where I realized that, you know, I'm essentially introducing myself to strangers, particularly mm. at conventions and places like that. But in the like the pre-interviews and places where I'm reaching out to folks and saying, hey, would you be interested in being in this project? No one really knew who I was. And like I mentioned, I talked to over 100 folks. I did not have a single person that I talked to um, in front of the camera on Looking for Leia question my credentials for making this project. I didn't have a single person wow. say, well, tell me why, like, how, tell me about your fandom. Like, no one quizzed me on my fandom. I wouldn't have expected they, that. Yeah, well, no woman, no non-binary fan quizzed me on my fandom. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm at conventions trying to, like, pick up B-roll and being like, hey, can I take some, you know, film footage of this snowspeeder model that you made? And it's like, yeah, you can, but I'm going to stand over your shoulder and lecture you about every single part of this as if you've never seen a Star Wars movie while you do it, right? So, like, at the same time as over 100 people didn't ever once question if I was qualified or even question, like, do you know about these things? There was just mm -hmm. this, like, really interesting like oh you want to ask me about my fandom yeah i want to tell you about my fandom and have you read this book i'll tell you what the, what the plot of this book is um but without that that sense of um here's why i think this is the best and here's why i think what you like is not the best and that, that kind of ranking yeah. wasn't present and it's not to say that women um are not completely capable of doing all those things in fandom, it was just a really interesting process for me. Mm. Um, because certainly doing press and doing distribution and all of the stuff, when I interface with other, um, maybe more mainstream fandom spaces, that would mm. come up. That, that's sort of like, why are you qualified <laughs> to, to, to do this project that's on fandom? That's crazy. Um, but I do, I appreciate your point too that like, there were folks that would tell me like, oh, I don't know if I'm, if I can be in this, I don't know if I'm enough of a fan. Yeah. I only like the original films or I only know this. I haven't seen these things. I haven't read these things. And then particularly around what Tracy Dion talks about in More Than the Basement as that kind of like acquisitional fandom, fandom studies mm -hmm. talks a lot about this, that sense of your fandom is, is, um, quantified by what you acquire. And yes. that could be trivial knowledge, um, that could be action figures. You know, trivial knowledge, I think, is actually a huge point of acquisition um, versus the more um, curatorial or creative forms of fandom, which is to say, like, I make tiny poured earrings um, or, you know, I draw or I write thick. Um, that those things which are generative and actually go beyond the IP um, do belong more traditionally in domains that have seen more women um, as being the fandom participants. And they tend to be diminished as well. 
Definitely. I think I only stopped feeling that way myself, maybe like this year or a couple of months ago, like that I'm kind of not qualified, but maybe now with the whole like acquisition thing, I can be taken seriously as like a real fan because mm. I started a podcast and I've spoken to some amazing people on it. But before then, like, so I got into Star Wars through the sequels. Um, I think maybe I watched like 20 minutes or so whenever it was on TV, because it was always on TV when I was growing up, but I never like watched it. And then I saw The Force Awakens in the cinema, fell in love with the world and obviously went back and watched them all. But I've always felt like maybe I wasn't a fan yet until, you know, I did have all the action figures or I had a lightsaber from the Disney store or I had a tattoo. Um, and when I got my, I have a Star Wars tattoo. And when I got it, I was like, that's, that's my badge now. I, I'm official. I'm a, I'm a fan. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, right. I don't think it should take that to make people feel welcome. But, and I suppose it's, that's maybe our own thinking that's stopping us from feeling welcome. Cause obviously everyone's been nothing but nice to me online and the people I've met and conventions and things like that. But there is that kind of inside feeling that like, I don't know enough or I don't have enough, like unless I have posters all over my wall and, and I've right. listened to every podcast or audiobook or read every single comic and like me not watching the Clone Wars, I was like, I shouldn't make a podcast until I've consumed everything. Otherwise, who am I to be a podcast host? Do you know what I mean? But I think this is part of what's great about being, you know, being a podcaster, being a filmmaker is that it's actually our job to listen to other people be the experts in yeah. their own experience, right? Not the expert in the material, but the experts in their experience of the material. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of what's great is that to not, and you know, certainly there's a lot of in, um, in Star Wars, and I would say across sort of geek areas that I know about or I got to experience because I listened to someone else tell me about how great they were. Yeah. Um, comic books have been huge for that for me. Like I've always had a very difficult time managing characters dying and coming back to life a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to talk with women who were able to be like, oh no, let me tell you why it's great that Loki is constantly dying and constantly coming back to life. <laughs> and here are the arcs you need to read. And I was just like, that's it. It's like, it's totally cracked it open for me. And now I can like engage with this material. So I think that it also invites a richer experience of fandom when we don't know things and we haven't seen things because a part of what's great about sharing fandom communally is that we get to share the things that we love with each other. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing I do wish that we got to have more of. It's certainly one of my goals and looking for Leia is like, what happens when you ask a person why they love a thing and then just like really invite that in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a practice that I've had to learn myself because it's easier to be like, oh no, I don't like that. Or let me tell you why I think that thing is the worst thing mm -hmm. ever. I certainly have my pieces of IP and my like areas in like, you know, broader franchise work where I'm just like, that movie is my nemesis and I loathe it. And <laughs> let me tell you about why I don't want five more of them, for instance. Um, but <laughs> um, there's, there's this, I think, abundance that happens when we invite folks to tell us why they love a thing. Yeah. And then we can, and it can be contagious and then we can love more things. Um, and so even when it's a story I don't particularly like or something that fell flat for me, I love getting to hear about it through someone who has. Um, yeah. And so that works for stuff that might have left us flat, but it also works for stuff that we don't know about. Um, yeah. And, and then I get really excited because I know that like I'm 47 and I have not finished being a geek because like I don't know how to play video games and I've never played D&D. So I know those are areas that are available to me and that at some point I'll be able to like dig into because like there's so many like rad D&D playing women in my life. And I look at that, I'm like, awesome. That can be on the list. That'll, that'll yeah. there'll be time for that at some point and I'm going to get to tuck into that. Those kinds of things I think are 
are really great. Those unpunched, you know, kind of tabs on the, on the geek card. A hundred percent. And I've definitely found that just through this podcast, like we've done six episodes now and at least two of them have like completely changed my mind on something. Mm. Like I think the, the Holdo episode specifically, I thought Holdo, you know, was was okay I was very much in that camp and I look back at myself now and I'm like what were you thinking that was like (laughs) no seriously I'm so ashamed that I ever thought this way but I was like um I used to be that person that was like if she'd have just told Poe her plans then none of this would have happened and all of that stuff Mm -hmm. and this most recent episode that went up where we discussed Holdo and my guest Alyssa McCante was fantastic and she literally just she made me see the light you know like he should have just respected her um leadership and that should have been the end of it and I was just like oh my god like I am being taught so much because it's you know it's just like another point of view another perspective she loves her and she's sharing that love and yeah it, it totally does kind of open up a whole other world and I'm very thankful to have this space to hear from some amazing people about their shared love like you say um so I think one of the most interesting points that looking for Leia makes specifically is that the movies, like you say with your talk about IP and stuff, the movies only take an audience so far and they are immensely important but I think it's what the fans take from these stories and create for themselves, uh, whether they're building a droid, building a community or building more stories that really make something new and special and I was wondering if you could talk on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is, for me, when I looked over all of the interviews and, and was listening to kind of like what people were telling me fandom meant to them. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I kept coming back to was actually one of the earliest interviews was um, with Christina Cato, who's in the droid building episode. And she says, you know, the movies are just their movies. This is something we build outside of that. And this idea that um, the, the, the storytellers themselves have done something brilliant and genius and um, particularly in a franchise like Star Wars that has kept it up over four decades. Um, I mean, like it is, a, it is a spectacular feat of creation. Um, and so it's to give um, story creators and IP creators just like all due respect. And I never say IP with anything other than that kind of like deference and respect. Certainly as a filmmaker myself, I know what it means to create a thing and to feel a kind of like, hey, look, I made that. Mm-hmm. Um, But that there is something that these films do so, and and stories, right, at this point. So it's the films, it's the comics, it's the animation. It's like this incredible, like, transmedia um, platform that invites um, identification and a furthering of the story, that they function as this kind of exquisitely arranged series of scrims that people can project themselves onto, um, and that they serve a therapeutic purpose. Um, right? They serve an organizing uh, purpose. They serve a healing or restorative purpose, a cathartic purpose. Um, I think that that's a part of what makes fandom unique in general, um, but Star Wars unique in a kind of really specific way. Uh, and that was the thing that was the most compelling to me when I was looking at and listening to the stories that were being shared with me, um, was this sense of like, wow, folks are really making this their own. And then you go back to the source material and there is that sense, like Maggie um, Novakoska says, like Lucas gave us bones. Uh, and like the sense of like, there's this sort of like infrastructure, but we then flesh out so much more. And I yeah. think that Star Wars is unique as well. And being a franchise that has always invited that, 
and celebrated it, right? Like Maggie talked about those earliest conventions and the ways that um, Lucasfilm was like, this fanfic is not a threat to us. This is actually like a part of our storytelling, right? Yeah. Like the fact that fans are relating to these characters so much that they're not just dressing up as them, but continuing the stories they're building, they're making art, they're making enamel pins. And you can see it in the way that um, the folks who work for Lucasfilm engage with fans online. Um, yeah. It's a really mutual and delightful thing. And I think that fan creators also, right, clearly are not out there making a ton of money on this IP. We're talking about cottage industries. We're talking about folks that are like sometimes doing stuff that's actually taking care of them, but it's nothing on the scale of what, um, you know, major studios are creating. That there's that generosity and that love around it, I think is really, is really great. Um, yeah, and, it's, and it does become something so much more than the base material. It's a kind of alchemy at that point, right? Yeah. Where just, the, the, just like the, the fan on their own without the source material isn't doing anything. The source material on its own without the fan isn't doing anything. You, you spin them together and you get this new material. And, um, and I find that just amazing. I completely agree. <laughs> um, so kind of like get rounding off a bit now in like the current state of Star Wars and fandom do you think significant progress has been made in representation in Star Wars in like recent years you know since like this new generation of fans has been introduced through the sequel trilogy I think I always like to answer this question by broadening it out of Star Wars honestly mm -hmm. one of the things that the representation conversation means to me is that it has to be industry-wide for it to be significant because in the absence of making it about the film industry and industry that I work in yeah. uh, is that it tends to let people off the hook that I don't want let off the hook if we are just focusing on certain sets of stories. So I can say that um, there are spaces in Star Wars storytelling where I feel like I just love seeing progress that's been made and those spaces are overwhelmingly in publishing and animation. Um, I think that those stories are rich and fantastic. And as a small media maker, right, like as a person who's never going to direct a tentpole film, um, when folks say, yeah, but they don't count, they're not the big tentpole films, I always get a little bit bummed out because I'm like, hey, those are actually the media that I'd be more likely to be participating in or making. Like, I'd like to really give the creators of that media that isn't the summer blockbuster just as much respect as we're giving the white male directors that are creating the summer blockbusters, right? Like we tend to kind of, I think sometimes we, we reify that hierarchy by dismissing um, media that doesn't have the same prestige attached to it as, yeah. as like the, the big trilogy films. Um, but I, I love the track that we're on. I'm extraordinarily excited about Star Wars television. Um, I am like, you know, gnashing at my knuckles about the state of television production right now <laughs> because it's, because there's just like so much I want to see. I am just like, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a terrifying time, you know, cause also all of us have lost, lost our jobs. Right. So like, there's no work. We're not getting to work in production all of these shows that I expected to be on air this fall and early next year aren't, but I'm, I can't wait for, um, for all of those. So, you know, I think that we're talking about progress that isn't happening because 
studio heads and funders have said, hey, it's time to make progress. It's happening because audiences have said, look, we're really going to start demanding that these stories um, sh reflect us more. And I think that sci-fi and fantasy in particular, it's, it's always so ironic to me because I feel like this genre of storytelling, these genres of storytelling have always meant the most to marginalized fans mm -hmm. um, for a variety of complex and complicated reasons. And yet they have always stereotypically been the domain of white cis het men. And I'm like, yeah, but these stories aren't for you. Yeah. <laughs> like they, you might be the hero in all of them, but they're not for you. They're actually not even about you. They're about otherness and about what it means to be an outsider and what it means to persist in the face of insurmountable odds. And um, y'all don't know about that, but we do. Yeah. And, and so, so I think that it's, a, um, it's an understandable pressure, not just from audiences, but also from creators, right? To be able to say, we've been radically shortchanged the voices and the stories of sublime creators because they've not been given a seat at the table to create. Um, and so I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see the direction that the next sort of generation of Star Wars projects is taking yeah. in terms of who is helming those projects um, and also what those projects are about. Um, I have consistently loved it in the most recent, I guess we call it the kind of like post Disney era of publishing. I think it's been extraordinarily strong and it's um, also something that has shown up in animation in a way that I've really loved. Uh, mm -hmm. And like loving a thing and continuing to want it to do better, feel like they go really hand in hand for me. Um, yeah, I think that is something that I want expressed on this podcast specifically is that like you can critique what you love so I feel like oh, if yeah. I ever have anything bad to say about Star Wars it's like but I thought you love Star Wars and I'm like yeah I love it so much that I want it to be better do you know what I mean yeah. like when we critique it or when we say this needs to be done better this needs to change it's because we love it still yeah. and we just want to be like you say a seat at the table yeah 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 that's it and I do think that like a critical analysis is not inherently a bad thing. Being mm. disappointed in a story isn't a bad thing, right? I do think there is a direct correlation with how much we love a thing and how deeply we can be disappointed by it. Yeah. <laughs> um, like you don't get to be that deeply disappointed by a thing that you're ambivalent about. Um, mm. and, and so there's like, a, yeah, there's a lot of, of kind of framework around that. Um, but I, I also think that most media makers understand that like critique is an inherent part of creation. Right, yeah. no one came out of film school not getting a critique. Like it's an we, it's actually how we learn. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, like that, that to me doesn't have to be a destructive process. That can actually be a really constructive one. Fantastic. And so, one last question before I move on to our rapid fire round: um, Who and what inspires you most in Star Wars fandom? Oh my God, that is such a question. <laughs> I was unprepared for that question. And again, this is like the rides at Disneyland or the favorite character. Like, yep. I, just, I just can't. Just wait till um, the rapid fire round. You're going to struggle. I'm not. Oh my God. This is like, how rapid is this going to be? You're going to have to edit it because like how, how rapid can it actually be? Um, I think that at the moment, and this is probably because it's taking care of so much of my personal um, quarantine time. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly inspired by thick authors 
because of the quality of storytelling that's happening in fanfic um, mm. for free, <laughs> which is always <laughs> just shocking to me. Um, but in a way that like, I'll often read more fic than I do other, like, you know, maybe sort of commercially published work because the quality of the storytelling and the quality of the writing is just really, really great. Um, and so I get really inspired by overwhelmingly women who are world building and storytelling in these ways that I just am reading and I'm like blown away by and, mm. um, and are doing it for the like, kind of like, you know, comments and kudos and love of folks that are reading their work. So that's a, I could say many, many different groups of folks, but because they've been taking care of me a lot while I've been locked in my yeah. house, not making film, I'm going to say fake authors right now. Fantastic. Are you ready for the quick fire five questions? Absolutely not. Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Question one. Favorite Star Wars movie? The Last Jedi. Okay. Question two. Favorite line in Star Wars? Oh God. It's going to be, it'll end up being a Han Solo line. Probably. It, it might be never tell me the odds. might be never tell mm -hmm. me the odds. I'm just going. I'm just giving you like first okay, thing okay. to my head. Favorite battle or lightsaber duel? Uh, battle of Hoth. Okay, and what would you love to see next in Star Wars, whether it's a game, book, movie, or anything? Um, that has, that I know is being made, or that would be my own dream creation? Anything at all. Um, if it, that I know is being made, I cannot wait for the Obi-Wan series. Like, I'm mm -hmm. so ready for Obi-Wan. I need the Obi-Wan directed, in, injected directly into my veins. Mm -hmm. um, if we're talking about, like, my dream project, I would like to see Asajj Ventress be brought back from the, you know, sort of space witch ether into new and compelling stories. Amazing. And finally, in as little words as possible, what does Star Wars mean to you? Uh, Star Wars is a site of imagination and escape and inspiration for me. Incredible. And that is the end of our journey together and our quick <laughs> I think you did really well. That was the quickest it's ever gone. I Ever. felt the pressure was on. I was like, all right, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. People like, take their time. And I'm just like, it's fine. We'll wait. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's helpful that there's so, like Star Wars gives us so much, right? Yes. And so I can also talk about the things that I love and are my favorites, knowing there's probably 10 things behind them. And like, that'll be fine. Because those things will all, like, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of abundance. It's not a zero sum game. But um, yeah. those are great questions. Thank you. Thank you so much for just joining me and giving me your time and like listening to everything you have to say. It was just a fantastic way to spend my evening. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, do you want to let people know where they can find you, where they can find Looking for Leia and things like that? Absolutely. So folks should um, follow us. We're most active on Twitter at Looking for Leia. You can go to sci-fi.com. That's S-Y-F-Y.com slash Looking for Leia to check out all seven episodes of the series. Uh, it's also available on their YouTube page outside of the United States. Uh, I'm uh, at Dr. Ophelian on Twitter, D-R underscore, and then a last name that's hard to spell. So if you have uh, show notes, maybe you'll pop yep, it don't be there. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we do love being able to connect with folks on, um, on social media, and we love hearing when folks have had the chance to watch the series. So please take a look and let us know what you thought. Hello. So if you made it this far to the very, very end, I will let you in on a little secret. So that was the final episode of Heroes of the Galaxy as you know it. But from January 2021, we'll let you know of the date as soon as it's all been planned. 
we are going to be relaunching the podcast as a much more regular general Star Wars podcast and I have a new co-host, we'll have some incredible new artwork, we'll have two new regular series and a Patreon which you can support us at. So definitely keep your eyes peeled, make sure you're following us at Heroes of Galaxy on Twitter and we cannot wait to see you in the new year. Have a wonderful Christmas, whether you celebrate it or not, I just hope you have a fantastic festive season and end of your year. It's been a tough one for all of us, but I'm sending love to every single one of you. Thank you for supporting and listening to my podcast this year. Lots of love.